Oh, we're live. Today, we're talking about a recent Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade. There's a lot of stuff that's been said about this case so far. I don't know what I'll be able to add other than hopefully a little bit more of a discussion around the history of this and the idea of natural versus constitutional rights. So what this program will be used with for today is to start off by talking about the Bill of Rights and understanding what are natural rights and what are constitutional rights. We'll talk about things like uh, substantive due process, and we'll touch on the Supreme Court decision of Griswold, which, after the recent ruling, is now somewhat in jeopardy. But I digress. At the end of this, we'll talk about what can happen next and what the likely outcomes will be in the light of this Supreme Court decision. We'll also answer questions at the very end. So let's get right to it. We have to first start understanding what are rights to begin with. So there's an idea in law of things called natural rights, rights that you're born with, that you have, that you get to keep inalienably. On the other hand, there are things called constitutional rights. Constitutional rights are specifically written in a document where a government grants them to you. And when it comes to our democracy and our constitution, there are a lot of rights to be discussed. If you are a proponent of natural rights, you might look for rights in the document, invent them from whole cloth. You might find other information from other countries and say, well, this is a right that we probably should have too. In the constitutional setup, a constitutional right is one that's clearly defined, or perhaps it is apparent underneath some other right in its shadow. We'll talk about penumbras as well. Now, this is not supposed to be an exhaustive discussion of Roe or Casey or Bergdahl or Lawrence or any of the other uh, constitutional Supreme Court decisions that have established rights that have been somewhat controversial. But let's get right to it. The U.S. Constitution contains about 4,400 words. It was written in 1787. It was a big discussion between Federalists and Anti-Federalists to make a position that was going to be understood to incorporate the new republic. The Articles of Confederation had simply failed. In this process, the Federalists believed you didn't need a Bill of Rights. The Anti-Federalists believed you did. They fought very hard to have a Bill of Rights. And ultimately, that was decided that they would have these first 10 Bill of Rights. Over time, we've had multiple amendments, and the amendments that are going to matter the most for the purpose of this discussion took place after the Civil War, the Civil War Amendments, it, most specifically the 14th Amendment, and how the 14th Amendment, with its Privileges and Immunities Clause and the Due Process Clause, have done some amazing work in our judicial system. So, with 4,400 words, how does that compare to other things we know about? Well, I like to use Mr. Popper's Penguins as my example of another book that we have a pretty good understanding of how many words are in there. Mr. Popper's Penguins has about 16,000 words, about four times the size of our U.S. Constitution. So you have an idea. The way the Constitution was written initially was fairly small, but it, it grew over time. In the world of the rights that we are talking about today, I'm going to take you in the way back machine. Long time ago, there were certain things you couldn't buy because a state prohibited it. 
Now, in a previous video, we talked about the Bill of Rights as it applied to the federal government. The Bill of Rights, generally speaking, was never intended to apply to the states. It was a limitation on federal power, not a limitation on state power. But as our own predilections have changed over time, that too has changed. So if you look back at this time when you're trying to buy something, a married couple was looking to buy contraceptives. And there was a law in the state that they lived where they couldn't buy those contraceptives. And they then tried to buy them and were criminally prosecuted. That case eventually made it to the Supreme Court of the United States. That case was Griswold. And in Griswold, the Supreme Court was tasked with a very difficult question. Should married couples be allowed to buy contraceptives? Is there a right that would prohibit the state from making it impossible to buy contraceptives by a married couple? This is how constitutional law typically gets decided. You start off at the very high level with the perfect plaintiffs, the ones who can go in and say, we are a married couple, we would like to buy contraceptives, we want to change the law. Now, sometimes those laws aren't always enforced, so they're just on the books, but no one's doing anything about them. That's not this case. Griswold began with a discussion of what rights were at stake. So, where in the Bill of Rights do you find the right to buy contraceptives? Which one? Well, this is what the Supreme Court did. They looked at all of the rights, and they said if you take them individually, they're very specific, right, to freedom of speech, search and due process, all of these different pieces, the first and the fourth and the fifth and well, uh, how do we get those rights to create what we now know as the right to privacy? Well, there's a thing called outcome determinancy. Outcome determinancy is something we all are familiar with. We say, what is the outcome that we want? And how do we get there? You start with the outcome. The Supreme Court, in the case of Griswold, wanted to strike this law down but they had to figure out how they were going to do it. And that is how we get what we know of as substantive due process. First, you figure out what the law is. Griswold bans the ability to buy contraceptives by a married couple. Second, you say, well, how can we get rid of it? The way they got rid of it in this case was to look at all of the rights in the Bill of Rights. And they said, if you took that up and held it in the air, like an umbrella, it would cast a shadow. And this shadow would create a penumbra. And this penumbra, this extra large shadow, the shadow that's bigger than all of the umbrella by itself, is these substantive rights. Now, how do we make these substantive rights apply to the state? Through the 14th Amendment. Now, when the 14th Amendment was first passed, there was a lot of litigation around whether it actually meant Every single one of the Bill of Rights applied to the states. That wasn't how it was decided before. No one thought it did that. We have these cases called the slaughterhouse cases with the privileges and immunities clauses. We're not going to go into that. Suffice it to say, when Griswold was decided, the Supreme Court found 
a right. This was not clearly written in the document, but it was decided by a majority of the court that there was, in fact, a right to privacy in our Constitution. This is interesting. It was never there before. It was brought in by the judges to be a right that now applied to everybody. Everybody now has this right to privacy. Now, the Supreme Court, once they decide to have something, once they make this into a right, you have a question. How do you make sure the right doesn't go away? If this right was decided by a group of unelected judges, all it would take is for that Supreme Court to be replaced as time went on. Now, we have a belief in a thing called stare decisis. If you've passed a law and you've been, it's gone to the Supreme Court and they've made a ruling, that is the rule that goes on in perpetuity. But that's not how people work. That's not how the system works. Sure, stare decisis is very, very important. But when you have an issue like a right to privacy that is fundamentally against a large part of your electorate, you have a question, you have a problem. So here is the next piece. Griswold was never codified. How do you make something truly settled law? How do you make it truly unable to be assailed again? A constitutional amendment. Oh, that's hard to do, Matt. Well, of course it's hard to do. If it was easy to do, they'd already have done it. But they didn't. To make it a law in the state. Many states have done that. Many states do have codified versions of some right to privacy. But it is on this foundation, this foundation of a right inferred by looking at a broad spectrum of the Bill of Rights to create the right to privacy, then applied through the 14th Amendment that we find ourselves with Roe. Roe versus Wade was a controversial decision for a wide variety of reasons, not least of which is the legal foundations were always made in sand. Substantive due process, the ability to create and find a right apply it to the 14th Amendment, it's only going to last as long as the majority of the court believes it was correctly decided. Once that's done, once they don't have that majority anymore that would continue that process, that is when you have the challenge. So there's been a lot of discussion about the Supreme Court judges when they were interviewed, the justices, before they became justices in Congress, in the Senate, saying, was Roe versus Wade settled law? And they said, of course it's settled law. That's what they have to answer. Not that it's settled law to them as a Supreme Court justice. They don't answer hypotheticals, remember this. But for a lower justice, lower judge in the federal system, you are bound by the president above you. You don't have that authority to go outside of it. So Roe is made into law. They look at Griswold using substantive due process and the 14th Amendment, the right to privacy among others, and say there is a right to abortion in this country. And every state will have to find a way to deal with it. Now, as we mentioned earlier, this was never codified in the federal system. There was never an amendment to the Constitution. As long as that foundation was there, it was built in sand. 
Anybody who thinks that that was never going to be overturned, you were not paying attention. This is how SCOTUS operates when it comes to controversial rights. And both sides of the political spectrum used Roe and the decision of Roe as political fodder, a wedge issue. Very often, political parties want to find a way to get you to vote their way based on a single issue. Oh, if they can do that, wonderful news for them, because now they don't have to win you over any further. They just have to have you look at that single issue. Now, over the last few decades, we've seen the erosion of Roe. Roe started off as a very, very specific um, at first trimester, that's the woman's right. Second trimester, kind of gray area. Third trimester, state has a right. That, that framework got knocked out over time. It started to go away. They'd make new laws and say, well, you have to have hospital admitting rights. We have to have a hallway that can fit two gurneys through because when you do those, you know, not very specific rules, you shut down abortion clinics. Here's the thing. Before Roe, there were abortions. After Roe, there were abortions. And after the decision in Dobbs, there will still be abortions. This is the nature of prohibition. You don't outlaw the practice and the practice stops. The incentives are still there. They're not going anywhere. And we'll talk about those at the very end of this video. All that is to say, when you start off with the understanding that this case, Roe, was decided on the foundations of a right that was found in the document through a penumbra and then applied to the state via the 14th Amendment, you should be scratching your head. And you should say, why was it done this way? Why is it that we are in this position now? Democrats or pro-life movement or the pro-choice movement could have codified these things and they chose not to. They might have had the political capital, but maybe for them it was just better not to do that. For the pro-life movement, you've won. We've won a big victory for the pro-life movement. What happens next is what I want to talk about now. What happens next? I think about the incentives. What are the incentives for people? In our country, we have a thing called FMLA. What FMLA allows you to do if you have a baby is you get to be on unpaid leave and you don't get fired. Daycare is expensive. I had two kids in daycare at one point. It was very, very expensive. These things in our country, it's not easy to have children. It's not easy or affordable to have children. And as long as those incentives remain, we will have problems with people seeking to terminate pregnancies early. That's what they're going to do. Just because you ban it doesn't mean you stop it. We tried that with alcohol and prohibition. It didn't work then. It will not work now. It will not work now. Already, we see a lot of companies lining up and saying, I'll pay. I'll pay. But those companies may also face criminal liability in certain states for this, this whole thing. These are the consequences of when you allow judges to make the law for you. If you like the law that the judges say is going to happen, you need to codify it. If you don't codify it, it's going to get overturned. And what cases could be next? Well, Alito, in his majority opinion, was pretty clear. We're just talking about Roe. We're not talking about Griswold, which is the right to privacy, meaning the ability to buy contraceptives as a married couple. We're not talking about Lawrence v. Texas, which is the 
Texas statute that had it, you could ban same-sex sodomy. We're not talking about Bergdahl, which is the right to gay marriage. We're not talking about uh, Loving v. Virginia, which is the right to interracial marriage. All of these things are all founded through this substantive due process in the 14th Amendment. We're not talking about McDonald v. City of Chicago, which is the case in uh, the Supreme Court back in 2010 that incorporated firearms as an individual right, which had never been done in the history of our country. Oh, but Clarence Thomas is. Oh, yes, he is. If you look at his dissent, or his concurrence, I should say, Miss Smoke, look at his concurrence. He says these are all things we should be tackling. They are waiting for these cases to come. They are eager to relook at these things. So here's my main takeaway. You can be upset. You can celebrate. You can do anything that you want to do. I just am glad that we live in a country where there's the ability to have these types of discussions. If you are part of the pro-life movement, what I urge you to do now, what you should do right now, is realize that it is too difficult in this country to have children. You should be pushing for paid paternity and paid maternity leave for people. We should be pushing for education of people in, in safe sex practices. We should be able to talk openly about the consequences of having intercourse without protection. And I will tell you, this is not going to stop the practice of abortion. Even if that's what you want to do. If you say, well, we just want the state to sponsor it. Okay. Okay. We are one of the only Western democracies that exist that doesn't have those kinds of protections for our population. It's a little bit weird. If you're on the other side of this, the pro-choice movement, this is a time to get active. The Supreme Court is the Supreme Court. They will make the rules that they make, but you can change them through advocacy. Many states will continue to have the ability for people to get the, uh, the procedures they want to get. But at the federal level, this could have been codified decades ago and it wasn't. If we talk about how massive the population is that wants to see the ability to have the right to choose available, turn that into a political action for making an amendment. That's hard to do, but that is the only way you ultimately solve this thing. Look, I find that this case is fascinating because it shows you how the judicial process works. You can be mad at the Supreme Court. You can. I understand the frustration some may have. I also understand the jubilation that others have about the decision by SCOTUS. The foundations were built in sand. These were never things that were classically understood as constitutional rights. They were invented because a Supreme Court justice saw an outcome they preferred. And when they saw the outcome they preferred, they found the legal justification to make it possible. When the candidates for the people who were nominated for the Senate were asked about Roe versus Wade, one of the most controversial cases that's ever been decided by the Supreme Court, they said it was settled law because at that moment it was. The moment they went to the court, the moment they sat there, it was no longer settled law. We expect a lot from our leaders. Supreme Court justices have lifetime appointments. They are not going anywhere. The moment they're in place, 
They don't have the same bounds of ethical and moral and other obligations that other lower court judges have. They are special. So, the very end, 20 minutes. This is why I wanted to talk about Roe versus Wade. It is a very interesting case, and the Dobbs decision is challenging for many reasons. Many people will find this to be a very difficult time going forward. But that is what happens when you allow judges to make the rules for you. If you don't like what judges do, you have to pass legislation. I think that both political parties found a lot of value in making sure that it never got codified in any meaningful sense. Both parties benefit from being able to take an issue and make a wedge so that you don't have to ask questions about other things that they care about or believe. If Roe is in jeopardy, so are a number of other things that you take for granted. Buying contraceptives, not least of those things, Griswold versus Connecticut. These will continue to be inspiring and challenging times. If we can come to any sort of consensus, it is that we need to make it easier for people to have children and take care of them. It's not an easy business. It's not easy to have kids. It's not affordable to have kids. And as an employer, we disincentivize people from having children. We make people make difficult decisions. Prohibition didn't work for alcohol. It is not going to work for abortion. That is all I have to say, at least on that topic for now. My hope is that you understand a little bit more of the foundation of Roe versus Wade as it relates to Griswold. Remember, a married couple went to buy a contraceptive and they were prosecuted. We had to fight for married couples to buy things. Was that right in the document or was that right discovered in the document? What would the founders think? I don't think it really matters at this point, but it's worth always considering. At the end of the day, I hope that this video is useful to you to help understand some of this case, what the natural consequences are. At the end, what's happened in this uh, case with Dobbs is that it goes back to the state. Allow the state to make the rules that that state wants to make for their population. That is the idea that was behind Dobbs and the idea of trying to avoid incorporation, the idea that you take rights on the federal level and force the states to adopt them through the 14th Amendment. It's a challenging time for our democracy. There is a lot of uncertainty. But hopefully, this short video, now at 22 minutes, is somewhat helpful to understand where the right came from, came from Griswold, how it was applied to the 14th Amendment, and ultimately what the Supreme Court will likely do with other cases that are on this same spectrum of substantive due process rights. We don't really have any questions, but I'm very excited to get your feedback. I got one comment here from a, a good friend of Randy. Fascinating. I will need to come back when I'm not in meetings. How can I download for listening on demand? You can go to my YouTube channel, Randy. It's Armchair Attorney, just look that up. This is streaming to YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. It's a controversial topic. I know I'm not going to get a ton of comments, at least at least at this level. I hope this was helpful. As always, everybody, this is how we try to understand our democracy. This is your democracy. These are your laws. If you don't like them, there are paths for you to advocate for the position that you want. At the end of the day, I'm so happy you tuned in. And as always, have a great day.